Hi everyone! We're halfway through the summer months and I hope you're all enjoying the weather wherever you are. Welcome to the Badass Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Fox. When it comes to writing a story, there's very likely going to be some research involved. There are always subjects we don't know enough about to write on. Even when it's something little to help set the scene or show knowledge in a character, we'll inevitably be looking up some information as we write. When it comes to nonfiction or even creative nonfiction, this is especially true. Every bit of writing in a nonfiction book must be true and be able to be proven because the integrity and credibility rely on it. But when it comes to difficult subject matter, sometimes it can get really heavy, and not just for the reader, but for the writer too. Readers can get content warnings, but writers often don't. When you decide to write about a specific subject, you have to mentally prepare yourself for the content you'll find and then have to write about. Often it's about pressing on through the hard stuff to bring it to light for others so that truths can be heard. If the writer believes strongly in the topic, it will be written. And if the topic matters that much to the writer, it will show in the writing and readers will see it. They'll feel it. If your goal is to persuade or inform, then you'll have an easier time reaching that goal if the subject matter is something truly important to you. Taking breaks often during the research and writing phases is necessary. You need to give your mind a chance to breathe and process the information that you're getting. Just the same as a reader is going to do when they're reading your book if it's something that is hard for them to process. Showing empathy is extremely important. Not only will it help readers connect to the characters or information in the story, but it shows the writer's stance and emotions on the subject. Don't worry about doing justice to the topic while you're writing. Just write and let the emotion come out. When emotions are present in the writing, it will naturally help do it justice. You can draw on your own emotional experiences to help even when a particular subject isn't something you've personally experienced. Feelings of sadness or overwhelm, of joy or fear, can be just as relevant in one area as they are in another. The physical sensations that you feel in one situation can still apply in a completely different scenario. Don't be afraid to tap into those experiences to help write your story. Embrace the emotions that come up as you're writing. Embrace the emotions of those who have been through what you're writing about. If it's appropriate, ask for help. Is there anyone you can talk to who doesn't mind sharing their experiences to help you better navigate the subject in your manuscript? If you're writing nonfiction, are there personal accounts that you can gather and refer to or write about? You need to make it as authentic as possible, something that I often talk about, in order to connect with the reader and make them care about the subject matter as much as you do. The depth of those emotions needs to be felt by the reader. If it's something that's particularly difficult for you due to personal experience with the subject matter, when you're gathering your research, try separating each individual topic or subtopic into categories. You can then mentally prepare yourself for each topic or subtopic before you dig into the heavy research. Don't be afraid to tackle the topics that may be difficult for you. Chances are it's difficult for others too. Having the courage to write about it can give others hope and a sense of solidarity. It could lighten the load. And processing those emotions surrounding the difficult subject can be healing for the writer just as much as for the reader. I see a lot of questions and discussion in the writing community about content warnings. Whenever there is anything remotely triggering for people, it's a good idea to include a content warning. It doesn't matter if it's something that doesn't bother you as the writer, because it's not about you, it's about the reader. It's about what could bother the reader. Sometimes I've seen people say things like, well, they shouldn't be reading this genre if they're not prepared to read about XYZ. And personally, I think that's a very poor position to take. It's dismissive of your readers and their experiences. Someone might enjoy reading thrillers, for example, but the way a character's friend or loved one dies might be similar to what they've experienced, and the reader has no idea what it'll be like until they read it. Or here's something I see often. People not like having to read when a pet dies. It can be gutting to read that in a book, especially if they've just lost a pet. And that's not usually something that is apparent in the back of a copy, it's just something that happens along the way. And it can happen in any genre. So the point is, you never know what someone else has been through. It costs nothing to put a content warning in a manuscript, a published book, or a query letter. It's just common courtesy. It's thinking about others. When you know you're dealing with something very heavy, put a content warning on it. 
When there's even just a few words to describe something that happened to someone, put a content warning in. If there's any doubt in your mind about whether or not a content warning is needed, that means it's probably needed. If you have that inkling that something in your story might be triggering to others, warn them about it. I've said this before. It's not a deterrent, it's just a warning so that the reader can mentally or emotionally prepare for what's to come in the pages. I don't like reading about certain subjects, but if I'm given a warning, I will be able to prepare myself for it so that it doesn't hit me unexpectedly. And that's what this is about. It's setting expectations for your reader. Don't catch them off guard with a subject that could be triggering for them, because that could potentially leave a bad taste in their mouth, and they may put your book down and never pick it back up. Even worse, they may have such a bad taste that they'll recommend others don't read it, and it could also lead to a bad public review. Even if the story itself is great, a simple trigger can set off a whole line of dominoes to come crashing down. You, as the writer, choose to write the subject matter and then publish it, knowing that it's a tough topic. Without giving a content warning, the reader doesn't have that choice or that mental preparation. Once you read something, you can never unread it, which means you can never unfeel the emotions associated with the words on the page. If it's not obvious from the title, the logline, or the back cover copy, in my opinion, the content warning should be the norm. Because giving a content warning is never a bad idea. My guest today covers some difficult subjects in his narrative nonfiction books, and we talk about his book, Bath Massacre, which covers information about the first school bombing in America, as well as some references to swastikas and German-American history, so please consider this a content warning. He also talks about what draws him to write on the subjects he does, and the inspiration behind these books, and it's a really interesting conversation about writing narrative nonfiction and the coaching services he offers to writers. Today's guest is Arnie Bernstein. He's a nonfiction writer from Chicago. He's a member of the Authors Guild, Penn, the International Federation of Journalists, and the Society of Midland Authors. He's also a writing teacher, editor, and coach with more than 20 years in the business. His books have been acclaimed by Publishers Weekly, Kirkus Reviews, and the New York Times. Arnie is a lifelong fan of the Chicago White Sox, a competitive runner, amateur ukulele player, and he can recite all the dialogue from The Godfather and Duck Soup. By heart. So welcome, Arnie. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you for having me. So you write you write narrative nonfiction, and your newest right. release is Bath Massacre, America's First School Bombing. And you've also written other books on the forgotten stories of American history. So what first drew you to writing about these things in particular? It's I've always been a history nut, and I've always been attracted to the things that people forget. But um, I didn't do well in history, but that's because I was too busy reading about the things I wanted to read about in history that they weren't teaching us. My parents, God bless them, encouraged me to read about the things that interest me. I was reading about the, you know, the about Huac and the Rosenbergs and things like that when we when we were not studying that in history, um, and it drove me crazy that things that were important weren't being studied. So I've I've always had a penchant for the story that's been forgotten, and it's the, it, it's what's driven. I guess my my writing career. Yeah, it's the same thing in high school. I always wanted to read the things that I wanted to read. Well, even in English class too, I wanted to read what I wanted to read. So anytime we were told, you know, this is the story we're reading, I immediately lost interest because exactly. it wasn't something that I chose, right? Yeah. So why was Bath Massacre, why was that particular story a story that you wanted to tell? It's such a, a gruesome event that happened. Um, so what right. was the inspiration behind that? I wanted to write a narrative. I'd been looking for a narrative. I'd done some short Chicago history slash guidebooks where I told like bits and pieces of Chicago history. One was Hollywood on Lake Michigan. It was told through the movies of Chicago. And the other was the hoofs and guns of the storm. I'm a American civil war and Abraham Lincoln nut. And so I told Chicago's story through Lincoln and the civil war, but I wanted a narrative. I was looking for a long form narrative. It's funny. My degree is in fiction writing, but I, I'm a horrible fiction writer but I use the techniques of fiction. I wanted to write, I, I'm a huge admirer of, of Truman Capote's In Cold Blood and Norman Mailer's nonfiction, The Executioner's Song, which is one of my favorite books. Both are, they, they're nonfiction novels as a word, using characters, um, scenes, all the things that a novelist uses only to tell a true story. Now I was, I was just kind of casting around and there's this wonderful site called Find a Grave 
that I get, I get lost in. It, it's a kind of, it's a, a sort of a worldwide guide to cemeteries around the world and who, who's who in what cemetery. And I, I, I love trolling that site. And it's, I stumbled across something that said the Bath School Disaster Memorial. I said, what is this? Looked into it and it was like a sledgehammer to the head. And I said, I've got to, I've, I've got to write this story. It was just profound. It was the first mass school killing in American history. And the short version is on May 18th, 1927, a madman who was a trustee at the school had spent months lacing the school with 600 pounds of explosives. A hundred went off, killing 38 children and four adults. And the man who did it, Andrew Kehoe, his farm was burning up at the same time. He had set his farm to go off at the same time. He drove up to the front of the school and blew himself up in his truck and took some more people with him. So, and they found his, the remains of his wife burned beyond recognition the next day on the farm. So in total, 38 children and six adults counting the killer and his wife were killed. Wow. It's an incredible story. Um, I mean, we've just had to deal with a school shooting down in Texas. Right. And um, it had me thinking a lot about it because they, they're similar ages, young kids, like, yeah. you know, it, and it's, it's, just, you know, it's still the largest in, uh, American history. Yeah, so sad. And you got to wonder what goes through these people's minds. Right? Yeah, and that was part of my job too, yeah. Yeah. to wonder what went through this man's mind. Yeah. Um, I, I saw it as this was going to be my version of In Cold Blood. Mm-hmm. And I was, this, it's great. This is going to be my In Cold Blood. And I went to meet, Bath is a small town. It's outside of Lansing, Michigan, middle of the mitten for people who know. And it's, but it's like a million miles away. And in the 1920s, I mean, it was in, the, I like to say Bath was the town that the roaring 20s roared right past. They didn't even have electricity. Oh, okay. uh, if anybody who had electricity, um, Kehoe had one at his farm, Andrew Kehoe the killer, and the school had a, gen- you know, they had generators. That's how they had electricity. A few other places, you know, stores, things like that. I mean, it's a quintessential small town America, and it still looks a lot of it like it did in the 1920s. There's mm-hmm. still no stoplight in town. It's a four-way stop sign is the center of town. So what is the message or, or the feeling that you, that you hope readers will take away from this? Oh, I mean, I mean, mass murder, any murder is existential. It's horrific. And yet, despite it, there is this inherent goodness that came out of it. Um, the, the people of Bath, you know, they, they came together and it's still it's still one of those towns where everybody's related to everybody kind of thing. And you, you, you go in the cemetery and there's generations of families are there. Um, people who are survivors, children, grandchildren now are, you know, still live in the town. Uh, they, in fact, the, the oldest survivor, uh, Irene Dunham, she just died a few weeks ago. She was 114. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. A lot of the survivors of the bombing, they lived into their uh, late nineties and even in past a hundred. And part of me thinks that they did it because they were living for two lives, you know, for the children who were, you know, ripped away so young. Yeah. It was um, when I, I I decided to do the book. I mean, it was once I found this story, I said, I have to write this. And I did some research and stuff. There's a museum at the local school and it's run by a committee of, of children, grandchildren, of the survivors. And it's, it's really a nice little museum. Um, there's artifacts of the day, things like that. The old school, it was re- only part of it blew up. So they, they rebuilt it and it lasted from 1927. They tore it down in the late 1970s. And the land that was the old school is now a public park. And it's a kind of a memorial park to what happened that day. Uh, the cupola that stood atop the old school is now at the center of the park, roughly the same area where it would have been you know, above that area. But when I met, I, I called him up. I said, I want to write a book about this. And so I went up there and met him. I had dinner with a friend of mine the night before. And she said, I never saw you so scared in your life. Yeah. <laughs> I found all these people, you know, here I'm this crazy guy from Chicago. Here I am to write your story. And they were staring holes in me. And I was really, really terrified. But I kept going back to Bath. And that first day, you know, this is my book. This is what I thought. And I met with these people. And, you know, we had a really interesting conversation. And then I went to the local cemetery which is just as you come into town where 17 of the victims are buried and you go around and there's all these tiny graves of kids. And it was like, this is not my book. Mm-hmm. This is not my story. This is their story. 
And now I have a duty to tell it right. Interestingly, and I didn't find this out till long after I had written the book, the people on the Bath School Committee, Bath School Museum Committee, that's what it's called, they told me later that a lot of people had come to them with ideas about how they wanted to write this book. And they said, no, we're not going to cooperate with you. And I was the one that they decided they liked the way I presented myself. I guess Michael Moore had been there a few weeks before I was there because he was working on bowling for Columbine. And a friend of mine said to me, well, you know, Michael Moore could have been the best thing that ever happened to you to win these <laughs> folks over. Um, I should point out that the book that's just been released, it's the updated edition. The original came out in 2009. This one, it was just reworked. What happened after it came out in 2009, I was contacted by a few other survivors who actually one was actually in Canada, uh, another was in Nebraska, and you know, they moved out of the area. And so I just took down their stories just for the record, with thoughts that maybe I'll return to the book again, um, someday. And this has been the this was the 95th year since the bombing, um, just a few weeks ago. So we published and I University of Michigan Press, we said, you know what, this is, this is a good time, let's do it. Yeah. And so we released it. Um, with the updated information that I got from the, the, there's other survivors that deepened the story um, mm-hmm. and expanded on a lot of things I had. It filled in some holes that I didn't, you know, that I knew were missing in the book. Right. The original. Um, and I think it's a better book as a result. Um, it also has a new introduction. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened was, I, this is one of those moments where you, one of those moments that you just wonder why you're here on earth. After Sandy Hook, after that shooting, I have a friend in Connecticut who was a minister, and I emailed her. I said, do you know what's going on? And she said, yeah, I live five miles from there. And I was mm-hmm. ministering to some of the families, and I was in the firehouse when they told them that the kids aren't coming home. Wow. And this is another you know, sledgehammer to the head moment. I was like, yeah. my God, I'm in the middle. I'm in the fulcrum between the two most horrific acts that one person can commit. And I called my friends in Bath. I should point out, you know, these are now some of my dearest friends in the world. This became more than a book. Yeah. It, you know, it really, it, it was a life-changing experience, which you don't, I did not see coming by any means. But I called them. I said, look, you guys know. If anyone knows, you guys know. And so they said, yeah. And they wrote a letter, which we forwarded to my friend. It was published in the local paper in Newtown, Connecticut. And my friend wrote a letter, you know, thanking them. Now, every year... Um, in the Saturday in May, closest to the anniversary of the bombing, they hold a luncheon. They call it the reunion luncheon, where they honor the 50th anniversary class, and you know they they commemorate the the children who mm-hmm. died that day. Well, the May after Sandy Hook, this was heavy, heavy on everyone's mind that day, and they read the two letters. Uh, it was one of those moments. There were just tears flowing, and there were yeah. it was it was incredible. And, you know, it's one of those moments I said, you know, it was like the Einstein said, you know, God doesn't hold dice with the universe. Somehow or other, I was in the middle of these two things. It's just, it, you know, you sit down, you want to write a book and you never know what's going to happen. Right. Wow. That is incredible is not the right word, but it's. No, I mean, it's, it's one of those things, you know. I, I don't even have words. It's Neither so, do I. It's it's, so... it's it's it's. But I put it all in the introduction. Yeah. Um, and it's I, I, somehow I got the words right there, but I <laughs> several drafts to do that right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, you know, it it it's one of those. I wanted to write in cold blood, and it's funny because I mean, I when I reread my book after it was done, and you know, I was ready to go out on tour and everything. I thought to myself, man, I really absorbed in cold blood because the whole structure is there. Yeah. The whole arc of the story is there, you know, murder in a small town, you know, and right. also, you know, Mailer's The Executioner's Song, murder in a small town in the aftermath. And they all have that same arc, introduction of the town, rising action, um, which is the, you know, the people in the town and the criminal high point where the crime happens, falling action, the aftermath of the crime. And then the conclusion, where are we now? Crime stories are great that way. Um, yeah. As far as story arc goes. Yeah. Um, but I, I used In Cold Blood and Executioner's Song as my models for uh, Bath Massacre. And it, it, I think it shows. And you've you obviously touched a little bit on the research phase, but can you kind of walk us through what happens like when you're gathering information for sure. narrative nonfiction and, and how long sure. does this the process is, take? Yeah, this is it's funny. I'm, I'm actually doing a three part blog right now. Uh, part two is coming out later this week on how to 
get the nonfiction narrative nonfiction ideas going. And I'm actually going to be writing my research blog tomorrow. So this is actually a good rehearsal. Oh, perfect. Um, to me, it's a puzzle. And I know what the puzzle is going to look like. And I have all the pieces of the puzzle. And I have to kind of scatter them on the floor and just put them together. I, I try to think visually when I do these things. I'm not a visual person, but I try to think visually when I write because I know I have pieces of my story. First, I met with a guy who called himself the, the, the town historian. He's, he's self-appointed. He gave me a lot of direction on who to contact and who to call. I looked through old newspaper accounts of the day, which, you know, the primary documents, as it were. It was a school board. Uh, the guy was on the, the school board of the school. He was uh, one of the trustees. He was mad, but he was one of the trustees and a trusted guy. And uh, so I read old school board reports, which are deadly dull, but fascinating, um, yeah. particularly when you would see that I, I held the actual documents in my hand with his signature on it, which was chilling. There was an inquest that was held after it happened. And so there was legal documents. It's a crime. So there's legal documents. That was a uh, Godson, I think it was it was filled with dialogue, with interior monologue, all kinds of things. You know, people said, Well, I was thinking this. So I was able to say in the book, he thought to himself, you know, kind of stuff. Um, plus dialogue, scene, anything that I have in quotations, um, and this is a standard of of nonfiction, is something I pulled from somebody who was quoted right. or something from an interview. And I did do interviews. I in, I was fortunate enough to interview a total of six survivors. In fact, one of them, she and I actually got to be pretty close, um, Josephine Cushman, she and uh, Cushman Vale, Cushman was her maiden name, and her brother was killed. He was seven, she was 14. And she, Josephine, was, oh, she was such a delight. We got along just great. We could be really, really good friends. But she was in her early 90s when I was first interviewing her, and she was telling me the most gory details, I mean, really mm. gory stuff. And I was afraid of upsetting her. And mm. I said, you know, Josephine, you don't have to tell me this. I wasn't, it wasn't worth the book to upset her. Yeah. And she stopped and she said, no, I am not going to be here forever. I want people to know what happened. Yeah. And that was my mission. And so the gory stuff that was in there, I kept it. Um, mm -hmm. And I was true to what she saw. Um, so there's that. Now, it was an explosion and it was a timed explosion. I don't know anything about electricity. Um, so I interviewed a guy who uh, was formerly worked for a power company. And I know nothing about explosives. So I have a friend who was an explosive expert in the military. So I interviewed them. They gave me a lot of helpful, you know, how these things could happen, how to set it up, what could have happened. That was useful. So all this kind of material um, and previous books that were done on it, there were two. There was one that was a, a souvenir booklet. It's, it's, I'm saying that loosely, but what happened, um, it's, it's really grisly, but people descended on Bath. 50,000 people descended after this thing happened to see the sites, as it were. Wow. It's a, and this is before the interstate was built. So, yeah. and Bath, there's 10, 20 cars, there's a traffic jam. I can't even imagine 50,000 people descending. It was insane. So, but he wrote a booklet that the kids in the, in the area sold, um, like, like a newspaper or something. Um, but it had stories of all the children who were killed and some eyewitness accounts, things like that. So that was useful. Um, and somebody had self-published a book about the crime. And so he, um, it, it wasn't very well written, but it was, it was incredibly useful. It came about 20 years before mine. Um, but mine was the first solid account of the crime. and. The folks in Bath, they, they, they love the book. They consider it the definitive account. Yeah, well, that's good. Yeah, it's, it's probably the best review I got. Is, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, that's good. That's... You know, I, wanted, I wanted to make them happy. You know, here I was, you know, I'm a stranger in town coming to tell their story. You know, it's, and like I said, when I walked through that graveyard, I said, this isn't my story. This is their story, and I've got to honor these kids. Mm -hmm, for sure. Well, that's like wonderful. It. I succeeded, you know, it's... Um, yeah, wonderful that they that they gave you that feedback and that they were they were pleased right. with it. So yeah. so getting to it, I have all this material. So I read through it. What am I looking for? I look for patterns, similar kinds of stories, so that I know, you know, I mean, you might hear two versions of the same story. And, you know, in, in you know, I put in, you know, in one version this happened, another account says this happened. Um, if I can't get a definitive account, but I look for patterns, similar stories, similar dialogues. 
it gives me a timeline. You mm-hmm. know, I look for that too. So these are the things I'm looking for. You know, I make my post-its, um, you know, I, I yellow things, I highlight stuff. I read through it thoroughly. Um, I'm like, my head is sort of like a mix master sometimes. And I just, you know, suck all this stuff in and just churn it out. And then I go back, I check it against my sources to make sure everything is right. And, you know, rewrite, rewrite, you know, massage it here, massage it there, you know, move things around um, to make sure I get the timeline right. And I'm making it sound very simple and very easy. And it isn't, I mean, if you follow the process, it's an easy process, but it's intensive and it takes really good detective work and patience. And I'm not one who's been loaded with patience in this world, but um, <laughs> it's uh, who is, but it's, um, that's really how I do it. I mean, there's a thousand ways to do it, but that's the method that works best for me. And how long did it take you to pull all of this together and, and get it ready? It was three years of my life um, from conception to publication. And it was, um, it, it was a hard three years. And then when I rewrote it, that took about six, eight months. It, it was a hard, you know, it's hard. Part of what I had to do was also get inside the mind of the killer, which was a labyrinth. And I could not crack it, which is probably a good thing that mm-hmm. I couldn't get inside his head. But I had to, I had to ex- find a way to do it. So this is where the research came into being. Um, mm-hmm. I found a book. Um, actually, it's Canadian. A Canadian guy by the name of uh, Robert Hare. He's a expert in the uh, study of psychopathy. Okay. Um, he's a psychiatrist. He's worked with a lot of prisoners and things. And he wrote um, a book called The Psychopath Next Door. And uh, okay. it's it, well worth reading. Um, but it gave me insight into what went through this man's head. And I don't know if your listeners might be familiar with uh, the Leopold and Loeb murder of in Chicago, the thrill killers. It was two guys who were brilliant. They were geniuses, uh, University of Chicago students who picked up a kid and killed him just for the fun of it, just to see if they could get away with it. And of oh course they didn't goodness. get away with it. They, were, they thought they were Supermen kind of thing, you know, the Nietzschean Superman. And their parents were incredibly wealthy and they wanted, you know, they did it. There was no question they did it. They wanted to get off though from the death penalty. So they hired Clarence Darrow. The parents hired Clarence Darrow, the famous attorney who was very anti-death penalty. And so he argued for these boys and talked about the same things that um, that Dr. Hare talked about in his book. And only it was a lot closer in the timeline to what happened in Bath. So I was able to use those kind of things to circle around and say, this is how this man thought. Mm-hmm. This is the things that were going through his mind. And That's- this is why he behaved the way he behaved. Um, Hare had something called the psychopathic checklist which was really great for me. So I was able to like score this guy on the different aspects of the, of the psychopathic checklist. I mean, we think psychopath, you know, the guy running around with a, you know, a chainsaw chasing, you know, campers or something, but it's a, it's a, a psychological condition. It could be somebody from, you know, the office bully that we've all had to deal with who gets their grins, you know, abusing people to a killer who is, Seems like, you know, a nice man who's nice to all the kids in town and things like that. And has a few quirks to him, which he did, who is secretly setting the school full of dynamite and ready to blow it up. The big question I get is why. And I had to get to that was the why. And the reality was there is no why. There is no way to explain this. Um, I'm sure there was something in his head that he was able to justify it, but he didn't leave anything behind um, other than a sign that said killers are made, not born. In other words, you made me do this, yeah. um, which, of course, is just not the case. There was something inside of him, that the switch that you and I and everyone has that says you don't do this kind of thing. Right. He didn't have that switch. It's, it's an intensive process, but it's similar to fiction. Um, mm-hmm. You have to take character, scene, dialogue, all that stuff, and put it together in a way that makes for a compelling read. And I'm I wonder because I don't I don't write nonfiction myself. I am a fiction writer. So I wonder mm-hmm. what the difference is. You know, it can be hard to write, uh, you know, the villain, for example, in, in a right. fiction story. And I'm but it's based on some someone, well, I mean, it might be based on someone in real life, but the character is not real. So I just wonder right. what the difference is between that and and writing someone knowing that this this evil person actually existed. I wonder if that's any more like of a mental challenge. You know, it was, I mean, I think, I don't know if it's easier, but, you know, as a fiction writer, you have the ability to go into somebody's head 
Whereas I have to adhere to the facts and I have to be honest to the facts. And consequently, I can't, you know, think, you know, I can't say that he did something if I don't know that he didn't do it. Right. Um, I've seen a couple of books in there that's, um, that give him actions and dialogue and things that nobody could have known if he had said it or not. So I, yeah. I which annoyed me all to pieces. But within those facts, you can, you know, work your, you know, that's where the writer magic comes in is how do you interpret the facts? How do you put the facts into your own kind of prose and yeah. give it your own stamp? You know, it was a personal book and much more than I thought it would ever be. Sometimes you just, you know, you read things, you hear things, and especially, you know, what's going on right now with, with oh, the yeah. school and, you know, it's just. Yeah. And I, I did write about that in, in the new introduction too, because I, it, you know, I, the morning of Sandy Hook, I thought, you know, after the, oh my God, not again factor, I thought, yeah. I think I'm going to be busy. And mm-hmm. I was, and I was interviewed all around the U.S. that week and also Australia, uh, Australian okay. radio station called me. Yeah. So it, 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 I was busy. It's, it's an awesome responsibility speaking for two generations of dead kids, you know, and it's, you're a parent, I'm not a parent, but, um, you know, so I, I guess I had that advantage that I didn't, right. to, you know, it, it, I think it might've hurt me a lot deeper if I was, if I did have a kid, right. um, on the other hand, I'm a human being too. And I'll tell you something that's, this is one of those moments. Um, I had a lot of those, those moments in quotes I do teach and, um, there was a shooting when I was close to finishing the end of this book, there was a shooting at uh, Northern Illinois university in DeKalb, which is about 60, 80 miles from me. And the next day, one of my students came in, she had a, a NIU shirt and uh, dark glasses on. So I said, are you in, are you in a camaraderie with, uh, you know, your fallen students? She said, I lost two friends yesterday. Mm. And I said out in the hall and she collapsed in my arms, mm-hmm. just sobbing. And that's when I saw what Bath really looked like. And yeah. I was close to the end of the, finishing the book at that point. So it, re, it really got me. But it, I was able to bring that into the book as right. well. So, you know, I mean, you never know what, what, where you get your stuff from. What's interesting, too, and this is, this is I guess, comical. The, uh, as I say, he was a school trustee um, and he had fights with the superintendent of the school. This was one of the main conflicts of the story. And I don't, I don't want to give away too much, but um, when I wrote those scenes of, you know, the arguments they would have on the school board, you know, I've been in the education for a while and friends who read it said, okay, were you writing about this person and that person who were on the school board at the meetings we used to go to? I said, <laughs> I said, no, but they were pretty darn good models. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. you know it, was, it, it did occur to me when I was writing. I said, no, this is this person and that person. That's part of what made it so banal um, is that it was standard school board stuff, two people fighting. Yes. Just don't expect them to be killers. Yeah, right. Moving into a little less heavy stuff. <laughs> yeah. And then how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? You know, it's a... <laughs> Uh, so something that I saw on your website is that you write on typewriters, which I love to yes. see. I don't do it myself. Um, I love typewriters, though. I love the the antique ones. Um, so what's the appeal there? And what's the process to go from that to getting it digitalized? Oh, I, I love typewriters. Um, I actually did a blog post on on my uh, typewriting teacher. It's funny. I mean, I, I'm old enough that, you know, we learned to type on typewriters. And I just love the feel, the kinetic yeah. feel of it and the sound of it and all that stuff. And I can still hear Ms. Begley's, you know, ASDF, JKL semicolon in my head. (laughs) But I learned how to touch type, which is great. And it's taken me far. Um, And it's funny because, I mean, I knew I wanted to be a writer. I always knew I wanted to be a writer. And after I took her class, I was in the typing room. They had a big typing room in my high school. And she saw me in there. She goes, what are you doing in here? I said, writing. She said, I thought you took the class for a blow off. I said, are you kidding? (laughs) I I took, I wanted to learn how to type. Um, And she went to her office, I think, just kind of amazed at all this but i've always liked that feel that sound um and of course computers came in and you know the next big thing but i missed it and i you know i mean i had i took there were programs you could put the sounds of keys on your computer but i would type so fast it would crash the computer (laughs) i'm I'm a fast typist and so it it would crash my computer and you know i mean i've been working on computers quite a while and i used scrivener and i didn't like it because I like to have the paper, I like to have the physical stuff. It just got in the way, Scrivener, I think, um, of at least my process. I know people who swear by it, but I, I don't care for it. And I did give it a shot. But we, there, there's 
in Chicago, the American Writers Museum is located, and everyone should go to the American Writers Museum. It is a wonderful place, and if you're a writer, you need to go. Um, it's a small museum. It's a wonderful museum. Part of the museum is called Tools of the Trade, and it's typewriter bank. And I was like, oh my goodness. I sat down, and I started wailing away, and I said, I have so missed this. Yeah, I have so missed this. And so I started accumulating typewriters. I finally reached a cutoff point. It was no more. So what I do now is I do all my first drafts on typewriters. And it, it's very easy. I, I, I like the process better. You don't use whiteout, by the way. It just comes up the keys. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've learned a lot um, from high school days. But they, um, I mean, you just wail away. It's a machine that's built for one thing and one thing alone, writing. Yeah. yeah. And... I mean, th think about this too. How many writer websites do you go to where you see an image of a typewriter? Yeah, right. I, it, it, it is remarkable. Um, for people who never used one, they they have them. Um, they, on my the banner on my website is actually the key the keyboard of one of my typewriters. So I I, li I walk the walk, you know, and, and type the type. Yeah. Um, but it's to me, it's it's. I mean, it's it's great. I can make mistakes. It's fine. I just get the words down. I just slam it down. And like I say, I'm fast. I'm a fast typist. So the words and the ideas come through, you know, fast and quick. I don't have to worry about them. And, you know, it's going to be crap anyway, you know, and it's going to be rewritten anyway. Right. So once I do that, I scan the sheets in, um, load them up to Google Docs, reformat them, download them in Microsoft Word. And then that's my edit. And my second draft is done on the computer. But okay. my first draft is, you know, write it fast, write it quick, get it down, feels like writing. And then slow down in the editing phase via, you know, I, I, I did a hard copy, obviously. I don't edit on the computer. And then I type in the changes onto the computer. But it's, it's my version of what Heming called, uh, Hemingway said was write drunk, edit, edit sober. Yeah. That's my version of it. Um, <laughs> right on the typewriter is writing drunk because I just, I just go crazy. And, you know, I'm happy as can be when, and when, and I love the, as I say, the feel of it. Yeah. It feels like writing. Um, yeah. And I know there are people who, who handwrite their first drafts. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't do that. My handwriting is, first of all, terrible. Um, <laughs> and secondly, my, my brain flies so fast that it, it's good to slow down, I think, for a lot of people, but that, that's too slow for me. So, But I, I, I encourage all writers to learn how to, to give it a shot. You know, try the alternative method rather than just the computer. You know, Robert Cairo, uh, who wrote the Lyndon Baines Johnson uh, biographies of I think it's a four volume set he wrote it by hand um and then his secretary typed it up and he used a typewriter as well but he writes his first draft by hand and these yeah. are massive books typewriters it was it's funny because when I learned I think I was in grade six or something like that when I learned how to type and what we learned to type on was this set of brand new computers that the school just got right um and I you know the same thing with the typing and we had a, a pink laminated sheet over top of our fingers so we couldn't watch what we were doing but then when uh -huh. I got to grade nine when I started high school typing class was on typewriters and I thought Fantastic. oh that's what did you what did, what did you use what did what do you remember oh, kind of used? I don't remember I don't remember because it was only for that one year in grade nine and I don't remember the call the the kind yeah, it was but a I royal remember... upright where we used we used big black royal uprights they were built like tanks yeah <laughs> they were they were big yeah um but no I don't remember the brand but between that and um my grandmother had a typewriter as well and I just it's the same thing I love that the feeling even even just the smell of it. You don't, you don't get oh, yeah. those same things with a computer, right? Oh yeah. So yeah, maybe I will try that. Maybe yeah. I, I encourage that. everybody to do it. It's yeah. it's fun. Um, I have two that I, and it's great because we just, we just redid our basement. So now I'm moving my typing tables down there and, you know, and, and the echo is going to be wonderful, yeah. but um, I have two, um, what I call my desktops. Um, I have a, a Royal Quiet Deluxe, which is circa 1950s. And I have an Olympia SM9, which is circa um, 1960s. And these are both big, heavy, you know, machines that are built for writing. And then I have, I call it my laptop, a Smith Corona Skywriter, which is a more basic typewriter that's for portable. Um, it was used by journalists and war correspondents and business people in, in the 19, it's, you know, made in the mid to late 50s, but they were using them. When they would go on the road, hence Sky Rider, because they would take right. them in the airplane trips. Yeah. So, um, but I, I use that for I go to when I type in the backyard or when I go to a, you know a coffee shop. 
or you know the public library or something and, and I want to write there I just use it and people tend to either you know they some crazy guy typing they either stay away from me or they ask you know and I am <laughs> I, you know, I'm not too into it you know then you know I mean what would be the person who interrupts me when I'm in the heat of the moment but um you know, if I'm, if I'm, you know, I, I, it's fun to, you know, answer the questions for people, you know, when they ask mm-hmm. yeah. and, you know, I mean, they, nobody seems to mind, but oh, it, 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 yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's great to just take it out and go play with it. Yeah. And it's so easy to just, as I say, just scan the sheets in, reformat them and, you know, you're good to go. So, and something else that you do besides writing is helping children and adults shape and build their stories. Can right. you tell us about the editing and the coaching services that you provide? Yeah, I um, I do various uh, various things. I do I have an editing that I do for people. Um, everything from people who are working on their dissertations to people who are working on you know, longer manuscripts. I do workshops for kids. You know, sometimes tutoring sessions for them, um, as well as creative writing sessions, things like that. And I'm now branching off into doing uh, writing workshops for adults. I'm doing something uh, actually this Friday in uh, there's a group in Chicago called Story Jam. And I'm going to be teaching a class in memoir writing this Friday to a group. And it's I mean, people, you know, what have I got to remember? You know, everybody's got a memoir. Mm -hmm. And so the theme is going to be I'll never forget where I was when I heard that fill in the blank. 9-11, 9-11, John Lennon was shot, John Kennedy, you know, for older students. And we all have that moment, you know, in our lives, um, or more than one moment. You know, I mean, 9-11 is vivid to me. Um, the uh, John Lennon is vivid to me. Robert Kennedy is probably, the, his is, is just, God, yesterday was the anniversary. Um, but that's probably the f- first one that I really remember where I thought, I think I'm part of something bigger. I grew up in a Kennedy Democrat house, so, I mean, it was... You know, we it was emphasized when when Robert Kennedy was shot, but right. I, that's the first thing I really remember, and realizing that I'm part of something bigger. And so, so those kind, of, you know, that that's a really neat in for people who are looking to write a memoir, mm-hmm. um, a short memoir, or something like that. We all have stories to tell, and that's what I emphasize. Whether it's kids or whether it's adults, we're inherent storytellers. We all have this ability to write. It gets beaten out of us when we're kids. You know, we we have. The, I mean, if you ever go catch a, you know, a four-year-old kid in a lie. The stories they tell are just <laughs> <Yeah>. fabulous. <laughs> they're, they're just wonderful. You know, it's, it's just entertaining to let them go on and on and on, you know, oh, no yeah. more, tell us more. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, and that gets beaten out of us as we get older and we suddenly, you know, are more or less put into, you know, creative straight jackets, it seems sometimes. And, uh, or you can't do that or you can't say that. And it's, but I'm convinced with this inherent ability to use language and to tell a story, I don't, and I emphasize this to students, don't worry about your grammar, or your spelling, just get it out there. It's all going to be garbage anyway. So just write it. Don't worry about your grammar. Don't worry about your spelling. Just get it out there. Don't scratch anything out. And, you know, eventually you'll get where you want to go. And then you go back, of course, and you clean it up. I do something called your daily word on Twitter. And I'm doing a five-part series this week on hard-boiled writing advice. And day one was, it's crap anyway, so just get as much crap as you can on the page. Yeah. Yep. Oh, I agree. That's where you yeah. get all of the, the best ideas out. And oh, exactly. Exactly. Out. You know, it's, you never scratch out. It's just basic stuff. I, I don't have any grand theories or anything like that. It's, um, I, I don't buy into writing theory or, you know, anything, you know, and I, I do not believe in diagramming sentences. I hated it in high school and I tried it again just for to see if maybe I was wrong on this and I was not wrong. Um, <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Um, it's, it's forcing a, a, pro, a mathematical process onto something that is not mathematical, but is more, it more of a creative thing. Math is finite. Whereas creativity in writing is not finite. Right. Um, there are a million different ways to go with it. And so that, that it's, um, I mean, I could honestly, I couldn't tell you what a dangling participle was or any of that stuff. <laughs> That said, my Bible is The Elements of Style um, right. by Strunk and White. Um, yep. you, you can't not have good grammar. You can't not have your stuff not For make sure. sense. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's where you, you know, after I go back and create this mountain of crap, you know, the shaping, the all this, the stuff, but it's called Elements of Style, not Elements of Grammar. It's mm-hmm. how do you take these elements and create your own unique way of writing um, right. while following you know, the basic rules. 
Um, We can't just write anything and want it to mean whatever we want it to mean. People want to see stuff that they they're familiar with. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're making the reader work too hard, you're, I think you fail as a communicator. Yeah, I agree. But I I like that you pointed that out, that it's the elements of style. I'm a geek about that book too. I have all four editions Mm -hmm. sitting on my shelf in my writing desk and I have a copy in my car. Um, like <laughs> if I go pick up food or something, I just, I just take it and I just read it while I'm waiting at the counter or something. Um, yeah. you know, I have a copy of my computer bag. Um, and, uh, it, it, I, I really am a super geek about that book, but I think everybody should get it, read it, reread it, reread it, um, mm-hmm. and absorb it. The lessons in it are, are wonderful stuff. I E.B. Wright, who, you know, improved on his professor Strunk on his original. I mean, E.B. White was one of the best writers America ever had. And uh, his, his essays are just delightful to read and just perfect little gems. And of course, Charlotte's Web um, right. is one of, the, one of the classic children's stories. But he knew how to write because he, he didn't violate the rules. He followed mm-hmm. the basics and made it his own. Yeah, definitely get that book. But save it for after, after you yeah. get all of the words out. <laughs> oh, yeah. Get the crap out and uh, then, then go back and clean it up. And so you've also done many seminars and panels and presentations and things like that. Yeah, so exactly. what sort of things do you present about? All kinds of stuff. I've, I've actually done corporate communication stuff too. I mean, which is the same as any kind of writer. You're telling a story. Mm-hmm. When, you know, even when you're writing a memo, you're telling a story. So the, these are the kinds of things I've, I've talked about. You know, uh, how do you use writing? You know, it, it, it runs the gamut of that kind of stuff. And how can you incorporate it into the work that you're doing, per se, um, mm-hmm. you know, for corporate communications, which I've done, or people who just want to write their story, you know, a family history or something like that. You know, you want to tell it, but you want it to be understood. And so, you know, th- these are the kinds of presentations that I've done mm-hmm. um, and the kind of people I work with as well. And you also have a blog that you were talking about. Um, yeah. And it sounds like you kind of do like tips and advice and things like that for writing. So is that is that mainly what the blog is? is it's it's it, it focuses, it, it kind of swirls around that. I mean, I did a piece on dyslexia mm-hmm. and which is, was, I talked to a woman who was worked with her daughter is dyslexia. And they told her that she'd be, you know, lucky she'd be wiping tables when she was 18. And today she is literally a rocket scientist. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Incredible, incredible story. It's just, so it's just a different way of learning how to read and write. Um, you know, I have the same thing only with numbers. It's called dyscalculia. So, you know, I get the learning disability thing. I can't, I, numbers are, you know, my mortal enemy. And so, I mean, I've, I've done blogs on that kind of stuff, um, on um, writing with typewriters, certainly on different, different aspects of writing. Right now, as I say, I'm doing this series on um, how to research how, you know, how to do research writing um, for narrative mm-hmm. nonfiction. I'm open to suggestions if people want to see something from me too. Um, I'm happy to do that. I just, I, it's kind of one of those, I have a writing kind of focus, but whatever strikes my fancy mm-hmm. is what will go down there. And I, I try to update it every couple of weeks, although this series is going to be weekly, but I try to update it every once or twice, you know, once a week or once every two weeks. And so, I, again, you've kind of already touched on, on the differences here, but can you tell our listeners what the difference is between nonfiction and narrative nonfiction and what makes you decide to write the narrative nonfiction? Well, nonfiction is any kind of, like, it's a true story, as we know, um, like, uh, you know, a biography. You know, I'm reading a biography now that John Meacham did of uh, President Andrew Jackson. And it's different than a narrative nonfiction in that it's telling his life story. And certainly there's scenes and things like that in there, but a narrative nonfiction focuses on a particular aspect of something, a particular tale and tells it in the form that we're used to with uh, fiction, creating character, creating scene, creating story, telling, you know, a narrative, following the narrative arc and the language is certainly more fun, I think, than just, you know, stock nonfiction. Nonfiction is anything that's true, but I mean, it's, you know, I mean, it, you can write an argument book or something like that. Um, you could write a lot of books about Watergate. You know, we're coming up on what, the 50th anniversary of Watergate? Yeah. Um, but there's only one All the Presidents Men, which mm-hmm. Woodward and Bernstein wrote. Um, and uh, as a narrative nonfiction of two reporters and how they, they, found out what was going on and how they did their, their job to uncover Nixon. And it's a whole narrative story with character, with scene, with drama, 
and you use those elements. Um, my degree is my master's degree is in um, creative writing, but from a program, it was a degree technically was in fiction writing uh, from Columbia College here in Chicago. Um, and the man who did the pro did the program that I was in, um, John Schultz, created something called the Story Workshop Method, where you use those um, learn how to do that. He wrote the definitive books on the Chicago 1968 riots and then the trial, the Chicago Seven trial, and you you can see I mean he does that he makes them that kind of story you know right. that narrative story and um, that's how he taught us and it was a revelation as far mm -hmm. as writing goes for me anyway and I bring a lot of that to certainly my own stuff and as well as in my teaching this is actually one of those those gratifying stories when my my book Swastika Nation Fritz Kuhn and the Rise and Fall of the German American Bund came out it's about like the, the elevator pitch, American Nazis in the 1930s and the people who beat them up. But when I, I did, did the uh, the book debut, um, one, one of my thesis advisor was there. And he said, you know, afterwards, he said, you know, I recognize your style right from the beginning, from when you and I were working together 20 years ago. Wow. Isn't that something? I was I was just thrilled when he said that. Yeah. Fantastic. So. Lastly, can you give our listeners maybe a few pointers on how to get started in writing narrative nonfiction? Yeah, sit down and write. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, that's, that's the best. Well, you know, I mean, obviously, it's not that easy. Um, I like to tease my fiction friend, my fiction writing friends. Oh, you, all you have to do is sit down and make stuff up. I have the hard job. Um, <laughs> and I know that's not the same. You know, I mean, find a good story. I've had a lot of false starts, um, stuff that I thought was interesting. And then I discovered there was no, you know, as was it Gertrude Stein who said, there's no there there. You know, you start off, you know, all gangbusters on something and then I realize eh, it's not exactly what I wanted. But you find it, you do your research on it. You, the research is vital um, and finding good resources is vital. I'm working on a proposal now. I, I don't want to say what it's about, but it's a, I found on Wikipedia something about this major event in history. I didn't know it was a small thing. And I said, wait a minute, how did I not know this? And it involves a much larger story. And suddenly I'm off to the races because now I, you know, I found literally thousands of pages of uh, uh, certain legal documents involving this event, um, as well as biographies, things like that by, by some of the principles. And it's an area I've never written about. So it's really exciting to me. I, right now, I'm, all I'm doing is I'm just writing sketches and things like that. It, I'm gonna go back later and fill it in with the facts. Right now, I'm just writing the emotions, the, you know, I, and this is advice I really give to people. If you want to get your voice on the page, I'm, that's my thing, getting your voice on the page. You use the senses and you use the emotions in tandem. The emotions are the drivers of the senses. When you have that on page, you have the reader. You'll bring the reader in. Oh, and absolutely. So that, yeah. And, uh, and so that's, that's really what my goal is, to get the reader involved emotionally. But if you want to write narrative nonfiction, read good narrative nonfiction, read good novels. Um, certainly, be, and the best novels are, are the ones where you wish it had happened. You wanted it to be true. You know, I just finished rereading To Kill a Mockingbird for the umpteenth time. And it's one of those novels that like, this is a story you want to be true. It feels mm -hmm. true. It tells mm -hmm. a truth in a way that I think a, a nonfiction book could not tell the same truth. But yeah, I mean, read good examples um, and look at the, the kinds of things that you're going to be writing about. How have other people approached the same kind of you know, ballpark? This thing I'm writing about, it, there's a lot of technology and science involved, which I'm not. It, it, that's part of the excitement for me is I'm not a technology guy or I'm not a science guy. So I'm learning all this stuff, which is really fun for me. And, um, but I'm reading a lot of examples of it and how other people did narrative nonfiction of similar kind of historical event. And so that's really useful to me to see how others have done it. Um, it's, I mean, it's like fiction. You look for other examples too. It's mm -hmm. not all that different, except you're taking the facts and you're molding and shaping the facts to tell mm -hmm. the story. Does that right. make sense? I feel like I was rambling there. But no, that no, sense? that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. I love that you're, you, you mentioned putting the emotion on the page because I think you're absolutely right. That's what draws the people in. And if they feel some kind of connection or, or some, some emotion on, on some level, the problem I have with a lot of true crime books is they make these guys like dark anti-heroes. And that was like, no way, no way am I making this guy a dark yeah. anti-hero. Yeah, um, no. The sympathy is with the victims. With my uh, 
my Nazi book, um, it, was, it was about, as I say, American Nazis in the 1930s and the people who beat them up. One of the people who went after this, this group of Nazis, the leader was named Fritz Kuhn, who fancied himself to be the American Hitler. Yeah, it's a wild story. I'll never have a cast of characters this good again. This crazy, unlikely Nazi leader, uh, Walter Winchell, uh, Fiorella LaGuardia, Thomas Dewey, um, the, uh, some movie stars, uh, and the boys of the Jewish mafia. Um, Meyer Lansky and uh, Bugsy Siegel were involved and uh, Jack Ruby and a bunch of people like that. And, you know, I mean, a lot of times when I read gangster books, and I do like reading that stuff, um, as I said, I could read, I recite The Godfather by heart, huh? and I could do that with Goodfellas too, by the way, if you're, <laughs> people have like three hours. One problem I have with a lot of gangster books is they make these guys roguish, and they weren't mm-hmm. roguish, they were killers. They were killers, they destroyed people's lives. But they also, they, we had these Jewish mobsters who were beating up these Nazis, and it, it was part of who they were. Um, they were defenders of their faith. They were horrible people, but in this one moment, they found something that was decent and good, you know, in their own way. You know, I mean, they were beating people up, certainly, and, and breaking bones and things like that. But I found a metaphor in that, um, you know, before the, uh, the Jewish Day of Atonement, where you atone for your sins, I said, this is the way they atone for their sins. And I didn't pull any punches, um, so to speak, but a terrible, terrible pun, but um, in describing what they did um, and who they were. But they were also human beings. So I was able to give them that little bit of humanity in that here's what they're doing. This mm-hmm. is why they did it, at least through my interpretation of the facts. And I didn't make them, you know, lovable rogues because they were not lovable rogues. They right. were killers, but yeah. they were killers. And, but within this moment of their lives, they showed what they were also made of beyond right. the loan sharking and the the murder and the bootlegging and all that. They were also made of something that wanted to def- defend something deeply inherent to them, their, their family, their faith. It's, it's an interesting writing challenge. You know, I mean, that's, that's part of the fun of narrative nonfiction. It's a, right, it's a challenge yeah. to take things that are, I mean, stories that we're familiar with or maybe not familiar with, um, characters we're familiar with or maybe not familiar with, and make them come to life and mm-hmm. make people want to read more about them and discover new things about them. It's, it's, it's fun for me. Yeah, I, well, it I wouldn't like do it if it wasn't fun. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, I can't write fiction. I've tried, and I'm terrible at it. <laughs> um, you know, I, you know, I'd like to say for my 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 thesis, I had to write the worst novel ever written, and I succeeded gloriously at it. Um, <laughs> and a couple of years ago, I took a look at that. Well, maybe I can do something with it. And I, I took it out of the box. I thought, yeah, here's what I can do with it. I can leave it in the box. Um, <laughs> you know, it's probably the best thing I could do with it. But um, it, it's hard. Fiction writing is hard. I, I, I don't, you know, and people, you know, I, I don't have that ability to create characters in my mind, and, but I can take real people and create the character around them and build, yeah. make them come to life. Wonderful. Enjoy it. Yeah. Well, that's what matters, right? You have yeah. To enjoy what exactly. you do. Exactly. Great. Well, thank you so much, Ernie, for taking the time and talking with me about all of this stuff today. It's fascinating stuff. For yeah, sure. I, I enjoy your podcast. So yeah, oh. thanks for having me. Thanks for having thank, me on this. Thank um, you. People can follow me on Twitter at Real Arnie B, R-E-A-L-A-R-N-I-E-B. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn. There's a page for the, the Bath Massacre book on Facebook as well. If people are interested. ArnieBernstein.com is my website. Um, I mean, people want to talk to me. I'm always, I'm always happy to talk, uh, talk the craft or, you know, whatever people want to reach out. Wonderful. I will put those in the show notes as well. Okay. Great. Thank you so much. This is a blast. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope this episode can help you in your writing journey in some way. I'm gearing up to get back to doing interviews Stay tuned in the coming weeks because I'll be interviewing the fabulous Bianca Murray about her newest book, The Witches of Moonshine Manor, which will air on launch day, Tuesday, August 23rd. Bianca is someone I have so much respect and admiration for. She's been inspirational and supportive for so many of us in the writing community and has helped me and has been so instrumental, more than she knows, not only in writing, but podcasting as well. I owe her a wealth of gratitude and I'm so excited to have her on the show. So stick around for that, as well as other fabulous interviews. The fall is already jam-packed full of regular episodes and bonus episodes, and I'm already moving into late winter recordings. 
Also stay tuned for some upcoming information about this November's mood pitch. I'll be putting a call out in the coming weeks for a pitch critique episode, so listen for that and watch for a tweet at underscore badass writers. Until then, keep being badass. <laughs>